Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, March 12th, we're studying Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 22. Jesus rides on a donkey into Jerusalem to the praises of the crowds, but his conflict with the chief priests and scribes only escalates as he goes into the temple and clears out the money changers. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Carl Roth. Pastor Roth serves at Grace Lutheran Church in Elgin, Texas. Pastor Roth, welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is a pleasure to be here, Pastor Apple. As we get started this morning, Pastor Roth, give us some context in the Gospel of Matthew. What do we need to know going into chapter 21? I think the most significant thing is that uh, back at Matthew 20, verse 17, Jesus had said, um, they were going up to Jerusalem, and he said, we're going to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. So we are, at this point, accelerating towards the climax of Matthew's gospel. Mm, right. Another right. interesting, uh, then what happens after that is is very interesting because you have the sons of Zebedee come up and, uh, you know, the, the mother is like, hey, uh, I want I want them to be exalted at your right hand and your left hand. And, of course, Jesus says that, that's not going to happen. Then he says, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then we do also have, we have the, the healing of the two blind men who these guys actually out of faith um, are, and are humble and cry out to Jesus for mercy. Whereas the sons of Zebedee are trying to exalt themselves. So um, the themes of um, exaltation and humiliation are, are um, very central here. And then we get what what's called the triumphal entry, although you don't have the words triumph anywhere in there, right? <laughs> Just like with Great Commission, you don't have the words Great Commission in Matthew 28, 16 to 20. Um, so at any rate, um, that that leads in very well to this. And I do, but I do want to highlight that term triumphal. Well, sure. Let's let's talk a little bit about that. One of the things that we've been doing with some of the parables of Jesus is we've been talking about the the titles that yep. are often given to them. So in, in chapter 20, for example, the first part, you've got what's often called the, the parable of the laborers in mm -hmm. the vineyard, which is true, but maybe takes the, the focus off of the gracious vineyard owner, right? right? Or the same with the unforgiving servant in Matthew oh, yeah. 18, you know, who's, who's really at the center. Yep. So this is not a parable that mm -hmm. we're looking at today. This is true history, something that really happened, but in at least the ESV, and sometimes you'll, you'll hear it referred to this way, we're talking about Palm Sunday and it's called the triumphal entry. Is that a helpful title for this text? I think it's an interesting title. I'm not sure uh, uh, it's it, it can it can certainly be misunderstood um, because, you know, the custom of, for example, on Palm Sunday, you know, all the kids walking in, holding palm branches and shouting. That's really cool. Right. I mean, that's great. And, you know, the, the more we get the kids involved in the service, it's wonderful. But I think the excitement can detract from the real focal point of what's going on here is that Jesus is not coming in to be, you know, a big powerful king that's going to get you fired up like a politician trying to rally a crowd. In fact, he's coming in humble and lowly. Now, what's interesting about the term triumph is that in that culture, uh, in the Roman Empire, when a general had successfully subdued a people, uh, 
slaughtered basically um, an enemy, he would be awarded what's called a triumph and he'd get all sorts of you know booty and things like that. But he would come back into Rome and he would march through on a stallion or in a chariot and he would be hailed as a great warrior. What we have here is really um, the wonderful opposite because Christ does not come to be that sort of glorious king. The point of the triumphal entry is, in fact, he comes not to kill, but to be killed, not to subdue, but to be subdued for us men and for our salvation. Right. The, what what sort of triumph is Jesus coming to win here? It's not the triumph of a Roman general. It's it's a different sort of kingdom, to pick up language that Jesus uses in, in John's gospel, right? Not a kingdom of this world, uh, but a kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, as Matthew likes to talk about. And so we're going to see Jesus bring that kingdom here in Jerusalem. We've got a big chunk of text today, so let's go ahead and, and read Matthew chapter 21, beginning at verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them out on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowds said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, And the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. That's the text for today, Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 22. So Pastor Roth, we get started here. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. Can you do a bit of geography for us here? What's what's going on here? Jesus is coming in from the east, right? He's preparing to to come in from the Mount of Olives. I think it's about two miles away, right? Yeah, that sounds so it's, right. It's re- relatively close. And, and we also have him going up, right? Because you, know, right. you always go up to Jerusalem, not because it's north of, you know, north, like right. we would say in America, usually going up to Washington, D.C. or something, but rather because its elevation is higher. 
So he he sends two disciples ahead of him mm-hmm. with these preparations that they are to make concerning what he's going to, to write. Take us into Jesus' words there in verses two and three. Yeah. So, I mean, Jesus is, is clearly showing his two natures here, right? He's got a plan and he knows exactly what to do. So he sends them on and he knows where they're going to find this donkey. However, uh, it, it's it, it. So that's his divine nature. But it also emphasizes his human nature because the Lord needs them. Right. The Lord who doesn't need anything. Right. He he lacks nothing. Nonetheless, in his incarnation, humbles himself, empties himself so that he, too, becomes dependent first uh, at his uh, well, at his mother's womb. Right. The umbilical cord. Um, and then uh, at his mother's breast. And as he grows up, he's dependent. He needs he needs sleep. He needs rest. He needs healing when he's sick. So. Um, this shows the two natures beautifully. Hmm. So we see both both natures in Christ on display here, that he is fully God and fully man in this command with two of his disciples going forward to find these two donkeys, and they are to bring them to Jesus. And Matthew tells us that this is done to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. This is from Zechariah chapter 9. What's, what's going on here with this fulfillment of Zechariah 9? Well, the first thing to point out is that uh, this is the... There's either nine or ten instances in Matthew of this phrase. It's a stock phrase, right? This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I thought there were ten, but then I went back and counted, and I couldn't find the tenth. So anyway, um, this is either the eighth or the ninth. There's only one more, and that's actually going to be once Jesus is uh, crucified. Mm. So um, these are significant phrases because Matthew is emphasizing that the entire Old Testament's about Jesus. Everything you know, everything written in Scripture is always trying to get us to focus on what Jesus has come to do, and he is fulfilling Scripture, um, and in the process of fulfilling Scripture, in Matthew, of course, Matthew 3 at his baptism, he came to fulfill all righteousness, and uh, and he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So that Jesus is always about fulfilling everything for our salvation. Hmm. The, the Zechariah 9 quote, I think, helps us understand the point of the donkeys, not only that this is what was said, so Jesus did it, but the fact that Jesus enters into Jerusalem on a donkey specifically is intended to communicate something. What is Jesus communicating by riding into Jerusalem on a donkey? We have the Old Testament example of Solomon coming into Jerusalem, I believe, on a mule, um, maybe a donkey. I can't remember. It's in first Kings chapter one. I don't recall. But, you, you know more about animal husbandry <laughs> than I do. And the difference between a mule and a donkey and, yes, and all, all those things. But, but yes, so, some sort of pack animal. That's right. Yeah. So that's there right. is a biblical precedent. So, I mean, like you could just simply say that this is, you know, like, well, Jesus had said one greater than Solomon is here. And so you, you know, Solomon was, was, was a great King of Israel. Um, but now we've got Jesus coming to be a greater one. Um, but I think that the the main takeaway is the humility aspect, uh, that he's not coming in on a stallion, you know, as a conquering hero, but on a humble donkey. And in and, and the Greek, it seems to suggest it's he's on the he's on the colt or the, the foal. Uh, so he's on. I mean, it's it's almost a humorous sight. Right. This grown man riding on a little donkey. Mm. Um, and and, uh, and so. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so so this um, it's it's uh, interesting to point out the liturgical context of this text when it comes up in the church year, um, sure. in the one year church year, church year uh, one year series, um, it 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 appears twice, um, and that is the first Sunday in Advent, 
and then Palm Sunday. So what, I mean, this is a good question because it always comes up and it's in the, it's in the three year series as series well. A. Well, yeah. you get Palm Sunday right. in all three. It yes. just is from a yes. different gospel, uh -huh. mm -hmm. right? So, so series A is Matthew chapter 21. And this is a question that often comes up. You know, we're getting ready to celebrate Jesus' birth, Pastor. Right. Why are we reading about this account near the very end of Jesus' life? What does Palm Sunday have to do with Advent? Well, I think it is one of the, one of my favorite um, liturgical coincidences or whatever choices that someone at some point made. Right. Because um, first of all, Advent is not fundamentally about preparing for Christmas. Advent is fundamentally about the last times, the end, Christ the King coming to judge the living and the dead. And so especially the first two Sundays in Advent thematically are focused on the same thing as the last Sunday in the church year. Mm -hmm. So the King is coming to Jerusalem, but I think what's wonderful about um, having it as the first Sunday in the church year is that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem to die. And so at the very beginning of the church year, you're getting the whole purpose of why he's born at Christmas. And so there, of course, are Christmas connections. Um, but then and the other theme is humility, right? At, at Christmas, Christ comes uh, um, born of the virgin, uh, laid in a manger among animals there. Uh, so you have, you do have some thematic connections. Um, and then, and then finally, and the second time we get it, roughly six months later, usually, well, four or five months later, um, we get it as uh, the beginning of Holy Week, right. right? Right. On Palm Sunday, this would be the appointed gospel yep. reading. Sure, sure. So the, the two things that I, I think stand out then from the donkey is Jesus is communicating that he is a king. He does come as royalty. But the question is, what kind of mm -hmm. king? Right. He's not coming as the, the conquering Roman emperor, but he is coming as one who will be killed, right. one who will be subdued, as you were saying earlier. So he is coming as a king, yes. but he's the king who comes to die, which does fit perfectly with the, the theme of Advent, right? The mm -hmm. word Advent means coming. Yep. And and so here is the one who comes. How does he come? And blessed one? is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Right, right. right as the crowds will pick up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So go ahead, Pastor Rob. Oh, um, I was just going to mention that the epistle reading for Palm Sunday is, um, I'm almost certain of this, Philippians 2. Yes. 4 through 11 or 5 through 11, yes. which is the humiliation and exaltation of right. Christ. And so he humbles himself, empties himself, becomes nothing to the point of dying, suffering on the cross. And I mean, we should be, we should remind ourselves sometimes how shameful a death crucifixion was. Mm. It was done naked. It was done to criminals, runaway slaves. Um, it, it was a, a, a shocking spectacle. Um, and so the, the depths of Christ's humiliation are shown through that way that he dies. Right, right. So here he is going into Jerusalem. The disciples come back with these these two animals, and Jesus sits on the one, right? The colt or the, the Seems foal, to be the colt. right? Yeah, okay. Yeah, the foal. All right. So, yes. And and then the crowds begin to, to react mm -hmm. to what they see. They spread their cloaks. They right. cut branches. They spread them on the roads. What's going on in those actions of the crowd? Well, it's ro rolling out the red carpet, right? right? I mean, it is it is recognizing him as a king. Um, and as we'll see, Hosanna means save us now, right? So this this is them hailing him as the Messiah, the expected king. Um, you know, it's only thanks to, to John that we know that there were palm branches. So Palm Sunday, um, you know, you, you just get tree branches here. People's, it's probably, uh, the word translated cloaks is is just the general word for clothing, but we, we assume that it's the out, outer cloaks that people would have taken off just because I don't think people would take all their clothes off and right. them out on the street. Right, sure. So they're rolling out the red carpet for Jesus. They're welcoming him as a king, not only by their actions, but also with their words. And so Matthew records for us in, in verse 9, 
Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. There's several things that we need oh, to yeah. talk about with, with what they're singing here. So the, you started to talk about the word Hosanna. Mm-hmm. What's, what's going on with that word? So it, it, um, it's an Old Testament term, so a Hebrew term. And uh, it does mean uh, literally help or save, I pray. Um, and so it's a, a plea for divine help or deliverance that's found frequently in Psalms 113 to 118, which are known as the Hallel Psalms for morning prayer. And um, those psalms were used uh, liturgically around the time of Passover, I believe. Um, and so there's a good chance that those psalms had been actually, you know, they they were either had been they were going to be used re- pretty soon, or or they had actually been used recently. Um, and um, so, for example, Psalm 118, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. The save us is is the term for Hosanna. Right. And that would have been one of those psalms used around this period. Sure. So these these psalms are on the minds of the people already. Mm-hmm. They see Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, and they start to connect the dots. Yes. That here, here comes the king to save us, which is... Go back to Matthew chapter one. Yep. That's the name Jesus has been yep. given. So, and specifically though, because he will save his people from their sins. Right. And that's where the, the confusion lies, right? Sure. He does not come to be the one who saves them from the Romans and re and liberates Judea and reestablishes a glorious throne at Jerusalem. Right. Right. So they they're barking up the right tree, you might say, with with this. They're making the right connections, but they're not fully connecting mm-hmm. the dots, just like the disciples have not. Oh, well, I mean, Peter Peter says, you, you've covered this not too long ago, right? You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Way to go, Peter. Go to the head of class. You know, but then Peter pulls him aside and says, you can't die. Right. Right. And uh, Jesus says, you don't have your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. And so the people here get it right, kind of like Peter does. But their minds are not on the things of God, but on the things of men, because they are expecting a, a glorious king, not a humble suffering king. Right, right. What about the the title? And we've covered this a little bit in Matthew's gospel, son of David, mm-hmm. that they call him. Why is this significant? Well, the, of course, messianic line goes first promised to Adam and Eve, right? The seed of the woman, then to, uh, Abra- well, really Noah, and then to Abraham, um, to to Isaac, to Jacob, and then it comes down to King David, right? And so it's through David is the the one who through through the tribe of Judah um, continues the messianic line, and that's how Matthew's gospel really begins, right? I mean, it it traces that messianic line through Abraham, through David, and then on down to Jesus. Right, right. The other thing that stands out here, and we've touched on this briefly, but blessed is he who comes mm-hmm. in the name of the Lord, that that they recognize Jesus. Again, they recognize him as a, a king here with this title, coming one? Yeah, and um, and I mean, think in the name of the Lord also. Um, the crowd probably didn't think about this, but it also means that he's the Lord, mm. right? He's in the name of the Lord. Mm. And wherever I put my name in the Old Testament, you know, there I am to hear. So the, right. the name of the Lord really conveys his presence too. Right. And and, and we had just heard the Lord needs, right? right? The Lord needs the donkey. And so he's identified already as the Lord. Um, so he comes in the name of the Lord, but he also is the Lord. Right. And this is the mystery of the Trinity. Sure. Um, I think that uh, I, I just love making the connection with the Hosanna and the blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord to the divine service, to the communion liturgy. Um, I mean, a, a profound connection there. Every Sunday is a little bit of Advent. Every Sunday is a little Palm Sunday. 
because the Lord comes to us in his body and blood to bring us forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation. And we sing during the communion liturgy these words because we're acknowledging the king comes to us. And we say, Hosanna, save us now. Help us, Lord, because we need the help that comes from receiving his body and blood. Right. So so these words show up in what is called the Sanctus, mm-hmm. it, the holy, 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 which is is really, I think this is, is maybe just a rabbit trail we can chase for a few minutes here. It's two songs put together, two two different Bible references put together. So here's the the blessed is he who right. comes in the name of the Lord. The first part is holy, holy, holy. Mm-hmm. How do how do both of those? Well, what is the first scripture? The first one is from Isaiah six. Together? It's the calling of Isaiah, right? And um, he sees the Lord in his temple, and he thinks he's undone. Um, and then the Lord, of course, atones for his sin by placing the coal to his lips. Um, and, and then that's actually when he gets sent out to be the prophet of the Lord. Um, and so this is an acknowledgement. The thrice holy one is the Lord. And we, of course, as Christians, recognize that as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so we, we recognize that in the divine service, the Holy Trinity comes to dwell with us. We're worshiping him in spirit and in truth. Um, uh, and then the second part, of course, is Jesus coming in the name of the Lord with his body and blood which went up to Jerusalem and suffered and died on the cross. Right. So, and again, I mean, the, the connection I think to Palm Sunday is, is appropriate there in the Holy communion that here comes the King. He is the one, the, the very God of the universe, the one who is thrice holy. He's the one coming. But again, how does he come? He is not coming as, as John three seventeen says, he didn't come to condemn the world. He right. comes to save the world. Mm-hmm. And it's a, a it's just a, a wonderful picture to put in our minds as we approach the altar, right? That we come forward to the Holy One who is here in his body and his blood, not to condemn us, but to save us, Amen. to forgive us our sins. Yeah, it's, it's a beautiful liturgical connection. Again, I don't know who who did that, but it, it's a wonderful, oh, wonderful yeah. thing to, to hold on to and treasure as we we go forward. The way that I've, I've pictured it before is, is, is heaven and earth, the division is, is gone mm-hmm. at that moment, and, and the Holy One comes to forgive us. Amen. Yeah. 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 It's beautiful. So the, the crowds, you know, <laughs> don't get all this, if, if you will, although it's, it's there, you know, in these words, as we've said, come from Psalm 118 mm-hmm. and it's there in Psalm 118, yeah. if they would have connected all the dots, right? right. Jesus later in Holy Week, in just a, a few chapters here is going to bring up other parts of Psalm 8, mm-hmm. 118, the stone that the builders rejected right. has become the cornerstone. Uh, Psalm 118 also talks about binding the festival yes. sacrifice, yes, right? Yes, indeed. So, so all of all of this is wrapped up in Psalm one eighteen. Whether or not the crowd gets it, uh, probably not. Right? Well, it's just a consistent theme throughout the New Text- Testament that the <clears throat> the crucified Savior or the crucified Messiah is just not what people were expecting, and so it it really takes, um, for example, Philip to explain to the Ethiopian eunuch that that Isaiah fifty three is about Jesus. Um, it 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 wasn't transparent. Um, because it confounds everybody's expectations, because it's the theology of the cross. And it is just not what anybody was expecting God would end up being like. But what's wonderful about it is he does all of this to save us and then to create new lives for us that can be lived in humility and in service toward others and not in self-service and glorification. Right. So the the crowd doesn't get it. And, and, as, as there's further reaction, right? So you've got the red carpet being rolled out. They're singing praises. Jesus actually comes into Jerusalem in verse 10, 
and this causes a, a bit of a stir in the city. And, and this might be worth pointing out that some people are joyously, enthusiastically welcoming Jesus, but some people are not. Right. And I think that's that's worth pointing out because in just a few short days from Matthew chapter 21, there's going to be, it seems the majority of the people are not so enthusiastic about Jesus. There's a mixed reaction to Jesus, even here, it seems. There is. And so that's why we always have to be careful not to fall into that whole Palm Sunday, everybody was praising Jesus, you know, and then a few days later, crucify him, crucify him, as if it were all the Jews. Um, no, there there was always a remnant. There was always um, a, a holy people set apart to the Lord. Who and and for example, we look at uh, Zechariah in the temple, Anna, uh, Simeon, Elizabeth. You know, these are these are righteous people, believers who are waiting for, expecting the Messiah. So um, we 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 shouldn't paint with too broad of a brush when we talk of the Jews, for example. Right. Right, right. So the the city, the it seems that the residents of Jerusalem, not the the crowd maybe that's following Jesus into the city, but those who are already there, they're the ones who stirred up. They want to know who this guy mm-hmm. is. The crowd's answer, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth yeah, of Galilee. Is this a prophet? A good answer? An incomplete answer? Well, it's certainly true. Right. right? Um, I mean, he you know, we see Jesus as prophet, priest, and king, I think, mm-hmm. in this narrative. We saw him hailed as king just a moment ago, and now we've got him identified as a prophet, and he's about to go into the temple and show that, well, suggest at least that he's the great high priest. He's going to, his his body is the new temple, um, and it's going to be the place of sacrifice when he gives up his life on the cross. Uh, so, yeah, I, I mean, <clears throat> again, what do the people mean? What are they thinking? It doesn't really matter. It is an identification, though, of Jesus as the great prophet, um, and you know he is specifically compared to to that prophet from uh, what Deuteronomy eighteen, right. right? The prophet like Moses who would come, and people need to listen to him. Um, he specifically identified that as as that in the book of Acts, and so yes, he is the greatest prophet of the Lord. Right, right. So certainly true. Not everything. We don't get the full confession that St. Peter gave in Matthew chapter 16, but it's it's true. It's a part of, of the picture of who Jesus is that this text is presenting to us. We're going to catch how Jesus is a priest on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on Worldwide KFUO. We'll take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. On this Thursday, March 12th, we're looking at Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 22 with Pastor Carl Roth of Grace Lutheran Church in Elgin, Texas. Pastor Roth, prior to the break, we looked at Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. So he's in Jerusalem. Again, this is Palm Sunday, the first day of Holy Week. And having come into Jerusalem, he goes directly to the temple. And in many English Bibles, including the ESV, the title over the text is Jesus Cleanses the Temple. We were talking about triumphal entry earlier. What about this title for the text, Jesus Cleanses the Temple? Good or bad? Helpful? Not? I'm going to say not helpful in this case, because 
it almost implies that Jesus came to just be a reformer, that he that he came just to kind of like clean up the temple, right? Drain the swamp. And then now, um, you know, we can actually reinstitute the right worship of God. But I mean, think about what's happening in this narrative. Uh, it, Jesus is going to go up to the cross and die. The curtain in the temple is going to be torn in two from top to bottom, indicating that this no longer is the place of sacrifice. Rather, the one who has come in the name of the Lord uh, and and whose whose body is the New Testament tabernacle and temple of God, as we see in John's gospel, is now sacrificed on the cross. And the temp- the body of Jesus now is the temple in which God's people dwell. It's the house of God. Wherever two or three have been gathered together in my name, there am I among them. So uh, the New Testament tabernacle and temple is the body of Jesus. Uh, and, and so the cleansing is not really the point. Now, there is a moral element to what Jesus is doing, and that is, the house should be a house of prayer. One of the major roles of the priest in the Old Testament was to intercede on behalf of the people. The Lord had said um, that uh, wherever he placed his name, there he would uh, hear and answer, and uh, that's certainly um, uh, the main function, uh, along with the sacrificial system of of the uh, the priesthood. Um, again, with it is interesting also to note um, chronologically, you know. In, you see in John's gospel, it happens in chapter two, and there's various ways of trying to, to work out how that happens. In John's gospel, we see Jesus go to Jerusalem three different times. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see him you know, all going, basically climaxing and going up just one time. Um, there's no in, inherent contradiction here. I personally think that Jesus might have done this a, new, a number of times. I mean, I think there's no reason, you know, think about what he's, he's constantly trying to make a point that his body's the temple and that they've perverted the sacrificial system. So uh, there's certainly no need to be troubled about the difference between John and Matthew, Mark, and Luke on this. Right, right. So instead of Jesus cleanses the temple, maybe we could call it Jesus replaces yeah, the temple. Sure, I'll take that. Okay, because he's he's not just, as you said, he's, he's not just reforming this to make it right again, but he's actually coming to do something far greater. To well, actually... we had the, the language of fulfilling. Right. right. He fulfilled right. the written scriptures. He fulfills the Old Testament rites and ceremonies. Right. Um, as Paul will put it, you know, all of these Old Testament things were shadows of the things to come. The substance belongs to Christ. Right, right. So so let's take a look at, at what he does then. He goes into the temple and says he, he drives out those who were selling, those who were buying. He overturns tables of money changers. He, he gets rid of the people who are selling pigeons. Mm-hmm. Why are these things happening in the temple in the first place? Well, you do have to have sales of sacrificial animals, for example, uh, when the, the purification of, of Mary and Jesus going up um, with her, um, I mean, they needed to sacrifice, what, two turtle doves or, or two pigeons. So you do need uh, that commercial aspect there. You okay. need sacrificial victims. So from that standpoint, um, <clears throat> you know, it, it's not inherently wrong necessarily. Okay, so it's, it's not the buying and selling in and of itself. Is it the the place of the buying and the selling should would would Jesus? I mean, and, and here's the reason I bring this up, and, and I don't know if you experience. I don't know when I first recognized this. It was probably as a, a child growing up in church. At some point, I I saw that the offerings after the service were taken out of the sanctuary and were counted elsewhere, and this was a a big deal that that money was not to be counted in the church mm-hmm. in the sanctuary itself. So is it? Is it simply the place of the counting and the buying and the selling, or is there is there maybe 
more going on. Well, here. I mean, given that it said you've made it to Den of Robbers, that would imply, oh, I don't know, some rank capitalism going on, you know, some um, overcharging. Um, but I think the place that makes a lot of sense to me that the the, the location of the sales would be problematic. Hmm. I, I I wonder if there's there's not more though, like that, because it seems that at least and again that the way that this text gets applied is we are doing what Jesus says as long as we just sort of keep the money out of the church or not do the business part in the church. And I think I think there's there's more to it mm-hmm. that it it comes down to what you were saying that Jesus has come to be the the once for all sacrifice yes that there's a, a bigger exchange right. that's no. supposed to be happening in the temple and it's been reduced to a matter of business mm-hmm. here right that that the exchange of i mean if i can put it this way that that god would exchange your sins for forgiveness because of the sacrifice has been lost and and it's been lost to the point that they they miss jesus in front of them mm-hmm. so that this, i mean again there's there's more I'm not suggesting we should like count money in the church or something like that, but there's more to it than just that sort of basic level oh, right. of the of the meaning, and that's what I want to Absolutely. dig into a little bit more. So, can you take well, us into and, that? And I, I just really want to emphasize that the, the 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 central point here is that this house, this temple, shall be called a house of prayer, and we're going to get prayer and an emphasis on prayer at the end in in just a few verses. And it's going to be prayer that's done in the name of Jesus, who is the house of God, who is the temple of God. Um, and so, yes, the, the body of Jesus is going to be that once and for all sacrifice. And then we're going to be incorporated into that body through baptism. And our house is going to be one of prayer and uh, and, and not of, of commerce. Again, it's not a worldly thing. Right, right. I, I'm thinking, too, of, you know, in, in a few chapters here, in chapter 23, Jesus is going to speak all these woes right. to the scribes and the Pharisees. Yes. And he, he's going to, to come down very hard on them mm-hmm. for, you know, leading people. They, they make a proselyte and then they make yes. that proselyte twice as fit for hell. Right. So that, that behind the, the money changers in the system is, is not the system itself, but those who've allowed it, those who've encouraged it and have missed the point entirely. Right. That they're, they're tithing their, their spices, but they're not paying attention to the, the bigger things of God that they should right. have paid attention to first and foremost without neglecting the others. They're, they're whitewashed tombs. That Absolutely. all of this is, is covering up. Well, I mean... Jesus has, has already quoted twice from Hosea that I desire mercy and yes. not sacrifice. And, 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 and But let's look at the, the actual Old Testament context here. Um, that's from Jeremiah 7.11. Hmm. Okay. The, the house has the house, right. which is called by my name, become a den of robbers. Well, listen to the verses leading up to that. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations. So, yes, this is also an indictment of the corrupt religious leadership in in Jerusalem, which uh, has has uh, turned the sacrificial system into something other than what the Lord had given it to be. Right, right. So again, so that there's more going on here than just don't count money in church. Right, absolutely. Right, right. yeah. It's it's the, I mean, Amos, we, we just got done with Amos mm-hmm. a few months ago. This was Amos's whole point over and over again about the, the, the worship life and the 
moral life, I guess, if I can put it that way, right? What you do on Sunday morning, and what you do the rest of the week, there's no disconnect between exactly. those two things. I mean, if you're going to talk about cleansing anything here, it's not the temple. It's mm. he's trying to cleanse the people right. of their idolatry and and purify these people to serve the living God. Right. And that cleansing is only going to come by his sacrifice right. that he's about to accomplish at the end of this week. Good. So instead, instead of making it this den of robbers that we're talking about, it should be a house of prayer. What's mm -hmm. what's the picture here that Jesus is, is giving? Oh, it's basically what the church ends up being, right? Hmm. I mean, look at look at what happens right away in Acts. Right. After Pentecost, and I think they were gathered for prayer, right? Yes. When yeah. when that happens and and you've got 3000 people baptized that day, and what are they doing? They're they're gathering daily at that point to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, break bread, and the pray, prayers, yeah. Right? The prayers, the prayers of the people. Right. Right. So, and I think you you see uh, Jesus provides a picture of what the temple's really about and what he does. This is easy to skip over, but verse 14, he doesn't just clear out the temple and leave, but actually stays there and he heals people yeah. there. That the, This is a key thing. And that's striking that even the blind, blind and lame were able to come into the temple, right? Right. When they've been considered unclean. Right, right. Yeah, I don't know the Old Testament reference, but that is not yeah. normal, the status quo that would have been there. Uh, and, and and look at this. He's he's driven out the the money changers and he's brought in the blind and the lame to mm -hmm. be healed. I mean, he's and that's exactly that ties in with the the parable of the uh, of the wedding banquet. Right. We're going to see right. that in chapter 22 is that the uh, the the establishment has devoted has basically said we don't want to come to the banquet. And so Jesus says, we'll go on out and round them up and bring in the blind and the lame. And the poor, right? And right. Because that also takes us back to the Beatitudes. Mm -hmm. Blessed are the poor in spirit. My mind's going back to to Matthew eleven that the Father would reveal these things not to the wise and understanding, but to what? the the babies, right? Well, and, and and look at verse fifteen. I mean, exactly. The chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, mm -hmm. "Hosanna to the Son of David!" Right. It's the kids. Right. So there are no adults of God, only children of God, That's as we right. discussed before. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> well, Matthew chapter 18. I mean, this is this is a theme that we've we've seen so many times in Matthew. Matthew chapter 18. Jesus, disciples are arguing about greatness, and he puts a kid in front yep. of them and Absolutely. says, Unless you turn and become like a child, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You you've got whoever receives a child in my name receives me, Jesus says. Right. We, we've just as as you were bringing out in the context in Matthew chapter 20. James and John mm -hmm. have have missed the boat on greatness yet again. The other ten get indignant, and Jesus shows them what true greatness is. And we we've, we've got a picture of that here that it is the blind, the lame, and the children, the children, right? And and I mean this is just striking, right? It continues. Um, they said, "Do you hear what these these are saying?" And Jesus said to them, "Yes." Have you never read? Isn't that interesting? Right? Mm -hmm. Have you never read? Do you even know your Bible, right. guys? Right. Huh? <laughs> um, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Now, this is striking because Tim, you and I have had between us what uh, eleven? Yes, uh, eleven. You have seven. Infants. I have four. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. eleven uh, infants and nursing babies. And um, I can tell you that I've never heard uh, a nursing baby cry out "Hosanna," right? <laughs> but your kids aren't as pious as mine. <laughs> <laughs> but what's he? What's he getting at? Is is uh, that what is praise? It is something worked by the Holy Spirit. Right. It is it is uh, faith is worked by the Holy Spirit. It's it's given to us by the power of the word of God, the Holy Spirit working. 
Um, we know it, it's happening in baptism. Um, and, and so um, it, it's, it's, remember how the Old Testament is constantly, uh, the Psalms are constantly crying on the entire creation to praise the Lord. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, the, the Jewish leadership is, has no, no interest in this whatsoever mm-hmm. and, uh, and re- rejects that. Actually, yeah, yeah it, it's it's very striking to see. I mean, you you see their their outright rejection of Jesus here all, already. They've already set their minds against him for quite some time now. But but again, I mean, this is just from a, a maybe a a sappy sort of perspective. This is a, a cute scene, right? All of these children praising Jesus, and and here come the the fuddy duddies, yeah. right? Saying ah. Why are why are you doing this? And absolutely, and, but it's it's a bigger point than that. Oh, right? of course, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that Jesus welcomes the praises of of these children who truly believe in him. Mm-hmm. And here are those who should have gotten it. Yes. And didn't. Right. Absolutely. All these things that Jesus has been teaching are being illustrated right here in in Holy Week, right? This is this is still Palm Sunday. So the the infants and nursing nursing babies are this is comes from Psalm 8. Yes. Right. Yes. Um, so is there is there some context there in Psalm eight that would be good to to bring out? This is a psalm that's speaking about Jesus, is it isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean it begins, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above uh, above the heavens. But then it does go on. Oh, sorry. Um, I lost my uh my screen. They, they have, have they have they have books. These days, yes, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. right. So, <laughs> so, Psalm eight, ver, the ver, verses I was thinking of particular is verse four. What exactly. is it? What is man that yeah. you are mindful of? of the son him, of man, the son of man, care for him, which is which is messianic, right? Yeah. Right. So you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings is referred to in Hebrews, right? So again, just like with the Psalm one eighteen mm-hmm. reference earlier, here's another reference from the Psalms. Yes, that if you go into it, you see the fullness of what is going on right. here. And who Jesus oh, is. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, right. I, I mean, I think we've emphasized this before, but when you've got one verse quoted, you want to go back and check the entire context right. Of, right? of that chapter, for example. Right, and particularly the Psalms. You know, I don't, I don't know about you, Pastor Roth, but it is it can be difficult to read the Psalms as centered in Christ. And so to see how Matthew brings this out, and this is Jesus, of course, bringing this out, but the, the way that the Psalms are, are not just interpreted as prayers that the Christian offers, but, but prayers about Christ. Oh yeah. Right. I mean, this is just something that isn't at least always on my radar. And so I appreciate seeing it there in the text. Definitely. So the, the text moves on then. So now at the end of verse 17, he, he goes out of Jerusalem to Bethany. So mm-hmm. during Holy week, and this is just maybe a minor point, but something we shouldn't miss during Holy week, Jesus is not staying in Jerusalem itself. He goes right. outside to Bethany, mm-hmm. spends the night there and he comes back into Jerusalem each day. Right. So we're the end of Sunday is, is verse 17 and then 18. Now we're on Monday morning just right. to in Holy week. Okay. Yeah. So Jesus comes back into the city. He's hungry. He sees a fig tree. There's no fruit. Well, I, only I, leave. Go ahead. I mean, he, he was, um, it's imperfect. So he was going back to the city. So I think okay. it's on the way back. I don't think he's to the city yet. Okay. All right. So he's, he's that's on the way. On the way. He's All on right. The way, right. Okay. That's the Greek language helping, helping us there out here. Go. Very good. Pastor Roth. So, so he's on the way back to Jerusalem, sees a fig tree, no fruit, only leaves. And he says, no more fruit from you. The tree withers. Yeah. And this it, is it's a, it's a, a bit strange. It's a prohibition. Um, and, and it's, it's stronger than may fruit no longer ever come from you. Let fruit, it's almost like a negative command. Sure, sure. You're not going to no bear any more fruit. No soup for you. <laughs> right, no soup for you. 
Um, and uh, the fig dry, the fig tree dried up at once. Okay, so so this, I mean, I've never even thought to do this, Pastor Roth. I, I like to garden. I've got some got some blueberry bushes growing in my backyard. I planted them last year. They didn't give me any fruit because they were new. I don't know if I'm going to get any. They got some blooms on them right now. I'm not sure if I'm going to get any this year. But I I would never think to curse my blueberry bushes. So what what's going on here? What is Jesus doing with this action? Right. This is what you might call a a, a visual lived parable. Um, and and I was think it made me think of Ezekiel four, where the Lord, in order to show that Jerusalem is going to be sieged, has Ezekiel do some extremely strange things. Um, take a, take some bricks and build siege works and then lay on his side for 390 days. And anyway, all of it is a visual lived parable. And that's exactly what's happening here. Uh, it is the same as the uh, the the, uh, the purging of the temple is is intended also to indict the you know corrupt religious establishment and the, the you know the way things were going at that time. And this is this is illustrating the same point. And it's really pointing forward to the uh, immediate, um, narrative uh, beyond that, which you're going to be covering in the coming days, right? right. Um, basically, they're going to come question Jesus about the baptism of John, and that's going to create conflict. Then you're going to have the parable of the two sons. The one said, yeah, I'll do what your what, um, father wants, and then they don't do it. And then others are like, oh, I don't want to do that. And then they actually do it. And then you've got the parable of the tenants, and uh, uh, the, uh, the people who are supposed to be taking care of the religious community are ultimately uh, not bearing fruit. And then you've got the parable of the wedding feast. So this this is a very nice introduction to that, what's coming. Okay. So, and, and we're seeing even a, a bit of a reflection of what's just happened yes. in terms of the conflict that's already been introduced right. with the religious leaders here. It's yep. the, the scribes and the chief priests who are particularly named. Now Jesus is giving a visual of what's just happened and what's going to happen going forward. Exactly. So the fig tree becomes a picture mm-hmm. of the judgment that is going to be experienced, particularly by the religious leaders. Yes. And that is fulfilled then ultimately in AD 70 with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, or is that going maybe a bit too far? I, I, I really find that a very convincing argument. Um, Dr. Gibbs um, makes that argument that the, uh, the, con- the, the, the context here is that Jesus is talking as he does in, in Matthew 10, for example, um, to his his twelve apostles, who are going to go out with a, in Matthew ten, for example, he's going, they're going to go out with a, for a very specific ministry to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and specifically not to the Gentiles. That's what it, that's what's that's what happens in Matthew twenty eight. That's when you get them sent out to the to the Gentiles, and so Doctor Gibbs argues that in Matthew ten, um, that is a localized ministry and proclamation that the apostles are to give. Um, and, and it will, when the Son of Man comes in judgment in AD 70 to destroy Jerusalem through the Romans, um, there, that is um, a historical fulfillment of the predictions Jesus made about not one stone being left on another at the temple, for example. Mm-hmm. So I think the context is, is absolutely key here. Right, and I would say that's true going forward into these last three verses that we have, 20 through 22, which maybe seem a bit out of place. The disciples are marveling at this action of Jesus. Mm-hmm. They want to know how it happens. And then Jesus turns and it maybe seems that he he veers off a bit. He starts talking about prayer. Now we have heard the house of prayer. Yeah. Jesus makes a, a promise in verse 22, well, verses 21 and 22, that is often taken out of context in American Christianity today. 
how should we understand Jesus' words here at the end of our text? So, so we're going to hear that, um, all right, if, if you all have faith and do not waver, not only will you do what happened to the fig tree, but even if you should say to this hill or mountain, be lifted up and be thrown into the sea, it will happen. And everything that you request in prayer, believing, you will receive. Now, American Christianity, in a lot of cases, will take this passage and, and abstract it and make it into a general principle about prayer. But if you actually look at it in its historical context, Jesus is addressing um, the, the disciples who are receiving a time-bound promise that they could hold on to for the next 30, 40 years, really, as they're, they're continuing to minister in the, the Jerusalem area in Judea um, up until that point when this judgment does come. So so the way you're suggesting we read this is not as some sort of general treatise on prayer. Say when, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, when you pray, pray like yeah. this. That is very clearly something that is a command for his church for all time concerning prayer. Right. This, on the other hand, is one of those instances where we need to understand Jesus is speaking to his apostles specifically concerning their preaching to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Mm -hmm. And the promise that that preaching is going to, pardon the pun, bear fruit. Right. Whether whether that is the fruit of judgment against the religious leaders or the fruit of, of faith, as we right. will see it in the book of Acts, of course. Yeah. So this this is not a general thing on prayer here. That yeah. that if you and I right here start praying for, I don't know, whatever, what should we pray for, Pastor Roth, that we're going to get it as long as right. we have enough faith. What I mean, what's the yeah. problem with taking it that way? Well, it ends up turning, uh, it, it turns you back in on yourself mm. rather than looking to the, to God for every good thing. Um, and, and it makes it, it, you know, these, these, uh, prosperity gospel, for example, sets people up for a terrible fall because it says, you know, if you just pray hard enough, if you just believe hard enough, or if you give enough money, right then you're going to get all these blessings. Well, as life shows so so often, um, we are often disappointed, and things we pray for do not come to pass. And what this sort of bad theology does is turns people back um, onto the to examine their own faith, and they end up despairing because they they can well they can they conclude either God doesn't keep His promises or that their faith was not big enough. Either way, it leads to despair. So, um, I mean, I think Paul's example in 2 Corinthians 12, when he prays three times to have the thorn in the flesh removed, should show us, I mean, or should we assume then that Paul's faith was wavering at that point? No, I don't think so. Uh, I mean, I, I think that instead what we need to recognize is that the Lord's purposes for prayer are not simply to get us to do really cool things, really cool tricks, or even to give us exactly what we want. Now, Luther does a, a wonderful job um, of, of explaining this uh, in the large catechism, for example, when he talks about the priorities that the Lord gives us in prayer. You mentioned the Lord's Prayer, and what does the Lord do? The most important thing, that his name be hallowed, that his kingdom come, that his will be done. And it's only then that we get to daily bread, the, the temporal needs, which actually the argument can also be made that daily bread is, is a reference to uh, the bread of life that Jesus gives us in the Lord's Supper. So all of the Lord's Prayer then could be understood as for our spiritual needs. And when our our um, our thought about prayer, when our focus on prayer is aligned with the Lord's will, aligned with those priorities, um, it, it, it preserves us from thinking that prayer is about simply getting stuff or doing really cool things. Right. Prayer focuses us on the promises of God 
right? Which is the, the point of what Jesus is getting at here with his disciples, that they would focus on the promise, as you said, that he made to them in Matthew chapter 10, and, and that that promise will prove effective. Even if it, you know, I mean, think about the apostles' ministry between this point, or after Pentecost, you might say, until AD 70. I, I don't know off the top of my head how most of them, maybe other than John, are martyred before yes. AD 70. Yes. Right? I mean, so I don't think they were asking for that in prayer. Right, the, but the Lord, the Lord is is faithful. Although, mm-hmm. well, they they did count them. They praised the Lord for for being for persecuted, being persecuted didn't they? Yeah. I mean, I think the other thing is that they are specifically enabled to perform signs and wonders that do turn the world upside down. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the 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 marks of the apostles. There's there's a lot of stuff, especially in the Book of Acts, that happens that's not repeatable. Right. It's not intended to be repeatable. It's like fireworks that are drawing attention to the. The message that's being proclaimed. So we, we really have to, to carefully sift through which words of our Lord are intended to be applied directly to our time without qualification and which ones have a very specific historical purpose. Right. So for us today, these words concerning prayer from our Lord ought to focus us on the Lord's promises, exactly. the promises that he had, he has mm-hmm. indeed made to us and to pray based on those Absolutely. promises. So Pastor Roth, take, we've got just a minute left here. Take a, take a minute and, and summarize, wrap things up for us in this, this well, morning. Well, I, I do think that what's interesting is that uh, about if, if we were to take that passage and apply it to ourselves, which of us really can ever pray without wavering? I mean, I think of the the father whose whose son is ill, and 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 Jesus, and he asks Jesus to heal him, and uh, you know, the, Jesus challenges the guy a little bit, right? What What do you mean? Can I? Right. And um, and the the guy says, "Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief." And so, as sinners, we should recognize that we'll never have a perfect faith, but you know what? We're not expected to. We have the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Uh, which he came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday to to instantiate um, d- later that week on Good Friday and rise on Easter to declare us righteous. And that's what gives us faith. That's what gives us hope. That's what gives us boldness to pray. Pastor Carl Roth is the pastor at Grace Lutheran Church in Elgin, Texas, helping us this morning with Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 22. Pastor Roth, thanks for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.